Good evening. We are back in uh, Numbers 18 again on page 155. If you'd like to have a look at that. And uh, let's uh, pray before we begin. Father God, once again, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that you speak to us through it. Lord, open our hearts and minds. Uh, this evening as we uh, listen to your word being preached. Uh, May you speak to us by your spirit and change us as a result. Amen. Well, uh, last week uh, we looked at the terrible events of um, chapter 16. Terrible because far from being natural accidents, uh, the judgment and deaths caused by the ground opening up, the fire and the plague are said to be at the hands of God. Now, I'm aware that this is a very unsettling subject for all of us, really. I mean, how can the God of the Bible do such a thing? Well, I think as we continue in this series in Numbers, then uh, it all begins to fit together, and we, uh, we see how it all fits much, more, uh, much better. And even here in chapter 18, we will start to see a foretaste of God's answer to the disquiet that perhaps we were let with, uh, left with last week. One thing I did want to clarify from last week before we move on is this. I did say that the scripture makes it very clear that the events in number 16 were at the hands of God. And I believe that this is to be taken at face value, as in the case of a number of other terrible events in the Bible. So we have the flood, the destruction of Solomon and Gomorrah, the plague after the fabrication of the golden calf, the plague caused by David's census in 1 Chronicles 21, etc., But it's not just in the Old Testament, because we have the death of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, which was also taking at completely face value that this was at the hand of God by the disciples of Jesus. And all these things, as we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 10, were were written down as examples and written down as warnings for us. What I wouldn't say is that de facto, therefore, All natural disasters, plagues, or accidents are a direct result of God's judgment or chastisement, or even to make a cheap theological point. Though interestingly, it's often the non-Christians, people who don't believe, who leap to those sort of conclusions. In Japan, I read this week, after the tsunami, a right-wing Shinto governor of Tokyo uh, was quoted as having said that disaster was a punishment from heaven. And that's a bit strange because Shintoists uh, don't believe in a personal creator or sin. So I'm not sure who he thought was punishing or what, they thought, what he thought they were, that he was punishing. But I'm glad that at, that at that time, the Christians in Japan were faithful to the attitude of Jesus in Luke 13. And it might be worth just turning over to Luke 13 now. It's on page 1046. I think it's important that we get the kind of the, old, the New Testament context of all of this. So in Luke 13, and in verse 1 there, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. And in verse 4, 
Jesus gives them another example. All those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. In other words, these were terrible accidents that happened to a group of people. But they weren't uh, seen by Jesus as a punishment or a judgment to God against a particular people. They weren't seen as a judgment to God for sinful people. But then if you notice, Jesus goes on to add in both cases, but I tell you, unless you repent, you too will all perish. You see, these events may not be God's punishment, but they still remind us of the frailty of human existence, and we all face judgment in the end. So at that time, the Christians in Japan were saying, if God had really poured out his wrath upon this country, and if that's what this tsunami was all about, then it wouldn't have just been the northeast coastal regions uh, destroyed, but it would have been the whole country. In a country where, okay, thousands died in the tsunami, but 30,000 people per year commit suicide because they have no hope. So it wasn't a punishment, but at the same time, perhaps it is a warning not only to Japanese people, but all of us around the world. Unsurprisingly, the Israelites, number 16, after the events of that chapter, uh, also felt that they had been warned. And God said in chapter 17 and verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, put back Aaron's staff. That was a staff that budded with almonds to show that Aaron was the only one who was able to mediate between them and God. And he said, this will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. But the people, hearing this, just panicked. You see, they can't see what it all means. They say in verse 12, we shall die. We are all lost. We are all lost. Anyone who even comes near the tabernacle, the Lord will die. Are we all going to die? It's not surprising, is it, their reaction after what they've just seen. We're all doomed. We're all doomed, they're saying. And of course, the Bible teaches that we are all going to die and face judgment. Hebrews 9 and verse 27 says, Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. We are all doomed if we do nothing about it. That's our problem. Just as it was the problem of the Israelites back there in the, in the desert. You see, what they're experiencing out there is the problem of what happens when a holy, righteous God collides with people contaminated by sin. The two do not mix. It's like mixing vinegar and bicarbonate of soda. You get an explosion of uh, carbon dioxide. Who said I don't know anything about science? The very word holy includes this sense of keeping separate. Holiness must be separate from anything that contaminates. God is the most holy one, therefore he is the most separate one. The Bible uses five metaphors for the separation of God's holiness. It uses the metaphor of heights. God is high above sin. The metaphor of distance. God is far from sin. The metaphor of light. God dwells in unapproachable light. The metaphor of fire. God's presence is a consuming presence. And the metaphor of vomit. God vomits out. All that is contaminated. You see, God cannot be near sin in any sense. If sin approaches God, it will be consumed. Psalm 24 asks, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And yet at the same time, God wants to draw near to his people. It's almost in Psalm 24 as if he continues and he says, Come, come all of those who have clean hands and a pure heart. You know the passage. 
You see, God sets up this holy place. A place with barriers and curtains and veils. But he also sets up the courtyard where people may approach God and get as close as possible through those cleansing sacrifices. He says at one and the same time, don't get too close because I detest sin. But he also says, but I'm going to come with you wherever you go. You see, this potentially explosive mixture between pure God and sin still exists. That's why the borderland between God and contaminated people is such a dangerous place to be. And at times, the people of Israel must have wished that, they'd, that God had stayed behind there in the mountain and not gone with them. Couldn't you have chosen some other people? Things would have been a lot safer around here if you hadn't tagged along with us. And that is the main purpose of chapter 18. Because it shows another aspect of what God does to address both their fears and ours as we approach this holy, terrifying God. And his answer may be somewhat surprising because Numbers 18 is not just a repeat of the description of the rights and responsibilities of the uh, the priests and the Levites, which you can find elsewhere in the Bible. In fact, it's a subtle modification over that. You see, God decides here that the temple sanctuary needs some guards. Now, I've been very good this year because after a lifetime of avoiding live football matches, I've now been three times in the course of one year all for the sake of my uh, 12-year-old son. I've been twice to the, uh, the Bernabeu Stadium of uh, Real Madrid, and one at a far superior place, I'm told, right here in Norwich. At both places, there was a small barrier all the way around the pitch, lined with stewards, who were sat there with their backs to us, to the game, watching us. And occasionally you see somebody walking around the pitch with his jacket on, which says on the back, Chief Stewards presumably checking that all the other stewards are actually watching us and not watching the, gap, the match. And at my first match, we were sat about three metres away from where Ronaldo Cristiano was running up and down the wing of the pitch. We could almost have reached out and touched him. But I'm sure if we tried to do that, then we would immediately have been leapt on by about ten different stewards running from every direction. And so it is that the Lord speaks to Aaron here in verse 1. And it's unusual that the Lord speaks to Aaron, not to Moses. Normally he speaks to Moses. But he wanted Aaron to get these instructions and put them into practice straight away. These instructions are vital for the security of the nation. Then there in verse 2, and again in verse 6, we read that God gives the Levites to Aaron and his sons as assistants. He gives the Levites to Aaron as gifts. It's a bit like the stewards who worked for the chief steward. This chief steward running around the pitch all on his own would never be able to keep the crowd off the pitch. But all those stewards helping him can do that. Verse 4 tells us that they would be responsible for the care of the tent of the meeting, all the work at the tent. And no one else may come near where you are. All the work of the tent. The word there means the work of guarding, the, the watchers through the night, if you like. In effect, they were to be like these stewards at the football match. They were to ensure that no one tried to reach out and try to touch God, whose name is not Ronaldo, by the way, but tried to reach God without any mediation. But you see, the Levites, they mustn't forget their places either. Verse 3 says to the Levites, they must not go near the furnishings or the sanctuary of the sanctuary or the altar, or both they and you will die. You see, the Levites had to remember their place. They had to remain outside. They had to prevent others coming in. In other words, they were to watch the stands and not the match. Only the chief steward, Aaron, is allowed to watch the football. 
And there were serious consequences for him and his family if any of the Levites broke that rule. You see, in verse 1, he says, You, your sons, that is Aaron and his sons, and your father's family, that is the Levites, are to bear the responsibility for offences against the sanctuary. So if anybody breaks through that line, you are responsible. Effectively, you will die instead of the person breaking through the line. And then he continues, and specifically to Aaron alone, and he says, And you and your sons alone are to bear the responsibility for offences against the priesthoods. In other words, if any of the Levites were to overstep the line, then Aaron and his sons would be held responsible for their sin, and they would die. You see, that was the problem that they had, the explosive reaction between God's holiness and their sin. The Bible calls that explosive reaction God's wrath. It's his active opposition to our sin. And it's not just an Old Testament characteristic of God. John the Baptist, as we heard in our reading, said uh, in John 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, and verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And the writer So the Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 in chapter 3 and says, So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And so on. But we shouldn't feel worried about this. In fact, we should give thanks to God for his opposition to sin, no matter how hard we find that. You see, without it, God would be a God who either delighted in sin or at least was not very troubled by it. Rain Grudem, a contemporary theologian, points this out. He says, Such a God would not be worthy of our worship, for sin is hateful, and it is worthy of being hated. Sin ought not to be. He continues, It is in fact a virtue to hate evil and sin, and we rightly imitate this attribute of God when we feel hatred against evil, injustice, and sin. Do you feel hatred against evil, injustice, and sin? I do in my better moments, I think. If so, then we're behaving just like God. We're behaving as God feels towards sin. The God who reveals himself in the Bible is a God with integrity. He's a God who doesn't tread the road of compromise. He judges and condemns all that is evil in all of us, no matter how small. But at the same time, and this is crucial to say, he is simultaneously being sustained by his undiminished love for each one of us. And we hold these things together. So we see the holiness of God exposes sin. The wrath of God opposes sin. That much is understood by most religions around the world. But the uniqueness of Christianity, the uniqueness of Christianity is that we also believe that the love of God deals with sin. So we've seen the problem. Here's the solution. See, God loves these people too much to allow them free access to his presence. God knows that no one can see him. To see God is to die. But God provides this solution. Out of his great love for the people, God gives them the gift of a priest, a priest who will bear the consequences of offences against God's holiness on their behalf. 
So the families of Aaron and Levi were gifts from God because in verse 5 they were to ensure that the kind of wrath we saw in chapter 16 will not fall on the Israelites again. Someone once described that the priests and the Levites here were acting as spiritual lightning conductors for the people of Israel. If you remember the sin of Korah and the 250 and the 14,700 people who died was to turn towards the sanctuary of God without mediation. They came up against the holiness of God without protection and were immediately destroyed by God's wrath. But God gave this gift to the people so that in the future, the people as a whole would be spared. The priests and the Levites would bear the consequences on their behalf. Now that's a great gift if you're an ordinary Levite. You know you're going to be protected against your own arrogance and impertinence in approaching God. You know that even if you should hurl yourselves at God, uh, jumping over that line, cause great offence against the sanctuary, against the holiness of God. There will be guards there to prevent you. But not only that, if you get through, the guards themselves will pay the dreadful penalty that you deserve in your place. Verse 7, the service of the priesthood is a gift. Of course, if you are Aaron or one of the Levites, it's not much of a gift, is it? If, one of, if any one of them messed up, then you and your family were likely to pay the consequences. On the face of it, you see, being a priest in Israel seemed like quite a cushy little number. Power, prestige, a fancy costume. But actually, they were on the front line. You see, Numbers 18 here was a bit like being given the job of mine clearance as a gift. Well done, Mr. Huddleston. You've done so well at interview that we thought we'd make you a great bomb disposal expert. Here's your pliers and a tin hat. See, if there had been a lightning storm, these people would have been sent out with a metal rod to run around in the crowd. And that's why the rest of chapter 18 is all about the recompense, the additional recompense that they receive for these extra duties. But at the end of the day, as verse 1 said, you, your sons and your father's family are to bear the responsibility for offences against the sanctuary. It wasn't a cushy little number. And it wasn't a cushy little number for Jesus either when he was given the job of great high priest. You see, we know from places like uh, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that like Aaron, Jesus made a sacrifice so that the unclean might become come clean and approach God. We learn that his sacrifice was once and for all rather than something requiring repetition. We know that it was made with his own blood rather than the blood of goats and calves. And here in Numbers 18, we also learn that Jesus is like one of these guards. It's not that he's a big, burly man who's going to uh, be able to leap on anybody trying to cross that line. It's not even that he had to deal with the occasional trespasser uh, determined to creep into the sanctuary without anybody knowing. No, we learn that Jesus has to deal with a full-scale assault against the sanctuary, against the holiness of God. You see, he took responsibility for the offence against God of every single person who is going to die and face the whole all-holy God at any time on this earth. And he died on their behalf. He bore that offence upon himself. See, rather than allowing many to perish, Galatians 3 and verse 13 says that Christ became a curse for us. In other words, he did exactly what Aaron and Levites were asked to do in Numbers 18. He bore the responsibility of our offences against the sanctuary or holiness of God. He was not just like that lightning conductor 
but he was totally consumed by God's wrath for our sakes. Now, if you were, I've used this illustration before in a morning service, so if you know the answer, don't tell her. But imagine you're in this wagon train heading across the Midwest prairies as an American pioneer. You're traveling in these covered wagons, slowly pulled by oxen, and uh, going through miles and miles of sort of savanna grassland. And one day you're horrified to uh, note as you look up at the sky this big plume of smoke in the west, stretching for miles across the prairie. And soon it becomes evidence that the dry grass is burning fiercely and the wind is blowing the fire in your direction. It's impossible to, uh, to run backwards faster than the fire because it's going too quick. The question is, what do you do in those circumstances? Any answers? Unless you know it. Well, there was shy. Go into the fire. You could do that. You might get a bit burnt. You could try. Chris is looking like he knows an answer. Yeah, very close. Burn a circle of grass around you. Yeah, best of all, just set fire to the grass behind you. Because if you do that, the fire, the wind will blow it in the other direction. So you set fire to the grass behind you. You wait for the wind to blow it away, for the fire to burn out. And then you move your wagons and all the people back onto that burnt area of ground. So imagine you're in that situation And one of the uh, little children in the camp says to you, are we really going to be safe? Will we not be burned up as those flames come towards us? And you say to them, my child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has already been. You see, in Jesus, the fires of God's judgment burn themselves out on him. All who stand in Christ and put their trust in him are safe forever. For they're already standing where the fire has been. So we've seen the problem. We've seen the solution. Just finally a few words about the results. I want to begin by saying what is not the result. The result is not that God has changed. We cannot divide God into some Old Testament God and a New Testament God or indeed a Jewish God and a Christian God. He is the same God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still loves us so much that he wants us to follow us into the deserts. But he's still angry at our sin. His wrath opposes our sin, as much now as it did when Luke wrote about Ananias and Sapphira, or John the Baptist spoke about um, uh, the wrath of God in John 3, or when God's fire consumed the people in the wilderness in number 16. You see, the danger of approaching God while still contaminated with sin has not been removed. Holiness still matters. It's not that God has suddenly decided that he he better not be too hard on us, because if he doesn't lighten up on us uh, soon, then he'd have no followers left. We'll all be burned to a cinder. No, the sacrifice that God made by sending his own son to bear the responsibility for our own offenses was not a lightening up. You see, grace doesn't come cheap. God's standard of holiness has not been softened in any way. It's simply been satisfied by Jesus dying in our place. So what does this mean for us? 
but it means that there is only one way to approach God and not be destroyed. If we rely on our own confidence and our, in our worthiness or in our religion or in our uh, good works or just in ignorant, unthinking pride, then we have no defense against God's judgment, no shield from God's wrath, either now or in eternity. But if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, then there are no barriers, no security guards, no priests standing between us and God because our sin has been removed and we can approach God in wonder, in awe, yes, in anticipation, but also in perfect knowledge and assurance that we will be welcomed into God's presence now and forever. Now that's the gift. It's no wonder that God says to the people, I'm giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. And some of you may not have received that gift for yourselves. Well, we don't want to frighten you into a position of accepting that gift. We want to say to you, God has done all of this because of his love for you. In fact, his judgment is a sign of his love as much as his dying is a sign of his love for you. He wants you to know him and be able to approach him without fear. But also, for us Christians, if we believe these truths for ourselves, if we believe in the holiness and judgment of God, if we believe in his grace and his mercy in providing Jesus to bear the full responsibility for our offences against God's holiness, then we need to behave in accordance with our beliefs. See, it's no good believing that we've been given the most wonderful, awesome gift in the world and then keeping it to ourselves. Especially when eternity is at stake. So as I conclude, we need to get real about the problem. We need to get real about the solution. And we need to be filled with delight and joy at the result. Let's pray. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 says this. Like the rest, we, all of us here, all the people in this church, were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Father God, we thank you. We thank you so much for giving us the priest who is a gift to us. We thank you so much for giving us Jesus, who died on our behalf, who bore the consequences of our sins upon himself, who stood in that fire of your judgment in our place to take the punishment that we deserved. None of us, Lord, deserve this. None of us are good enough to approach you. And yet Jesus has done that work on our behalf. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for the gift of grace. We thank you that it's not by our own works. We cannot feel proud in any way. We just can feel humble and just so deeply loved by you, our loving Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord. Amen.